This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project podcast, where we have a chance to talk to Christians who have made a success of their career, but also been able to incorporate the uh, the convictions of their faith. And today we're talking with Paul Mergard. Paul first trained as an accountant with a Bachelor of Business and uh, was an accountant with the, the leading firm KPMG. But he moved into international studies and international work following a graduate diploma in international development. He's been a significant in leading two of our country's largest charities, the Salvation Army and Compassion, but currently is CEO of Destiny Rescue, an organisation that is committed to finding ways to help people out of uh, poverty and out of the horrific uh, implications of, of people trafficking. Paul, thank you for your time this morning. It's a, it's a delight to welcome you and to have a Christian so committed to making such a big difference in the world. Oh, thank you, Brendan. It's really good to be able to join you and, yeah, look forward to uh, having a conversation around uh, around whatever we want to talk about today, I guess. so. Um, Paul, I think most people who would be listening to us would, would know of Destiny Rescue at least by reputation or they'd recognise that name. Before we start to dig into your background and, and the work that, you're heavily involved in through Destiny Rescue. Can you maybe explain for us what is the organisation, what are its key goals, what difference you're trying to make in the world? Yeah, Brendan, we exist, Destiny Rescue exists to uh, rescue children that have been sold into the sex trade around the world. Um, we operate in 13 countries. We've so far rescued just over uh, 13,339 individuals since we began in 2001. Most of those 13,000 uh, would be children, but we do, you know, we, we primarily go out to find children that have been trafficked and rescue them. But if we do find adults, and they're generally young adults, uh, we will rescue them as well. Uh, operate in 13, uh, 12 countries around the world. Uh, we've got three countries in Africa, quite a number of countries in uh, Southeast Asia and South Asia, and then a number of countries in Latin America. And essentially what our agents, our rescue agency, we've got over 150 rescue agents spread around the world. Uh, they go into some of the darkest places on the face of the planet, into bars, brothels, massage parlours, um, on borders, international borders, and we try to identify where kids are being trafficked and exploited and then work with law enforcement to get them out, get them into safety, get them into a uh, safe environment, and then we work with them on an aftercare journey. So that could be helping them get back into school, uh, could be helping families start small businesses, and uh, and then also dealing, you know, helping them deal with the trauma of what they've been through uh, before they were uh, rescued. Sounds an incredibly powerful um, place to be working, challenging as it obviously will be, and we'll explore some of that. I'm, I'm conscious, Paul, that that's a that seems a very big number thirteen thousand, more than thirteen thousand individual kids that you have your organisation has been part of of uh, intervening on behalf of most of the people listening to this podcast will have a family that's middle class or upper middle class and will have heard about this sort of stuff on the news and in media how prevalent is the problem is is it restricted to those dark places of the earth the world or is it somewhere like sydney yeah, Brendan, it is incredibly prevalent. There are over a million children trafficked every year around the world. A lot of those are in Southeast Asia, but we would find that well over 50%, and, and I'm not exactly sure what the number is, but more than half of the people we would rescue have been exploited and groomed on Facebook, TikTok, um, Snapchat, Instagram. And... Uh, there are kids in Australia that also get trafficked and are also being exploited for sex. Often in Australia, it is kids that are couch surfing, 
it is kids that are, have fallen through the cracks from some of our social welfare situations. But there are kids in Australia that are groomed by people online, people, you know, pretending to be somebody else. And, you know, they've got all the social media profiles set up and everything else. And, and you know, I was talking to a social worker the other week at one of our events and uh, he was a youth social worker and was talked about one of his clients was trying to find accommodation, couldn't find accommodation. I think she was 15 or 16 and she had a guy offer her free accommodation uh, for sex. And so it does happen in Australia, but yeah. certainly, um, you know, it is more prevalent overseas where there is less child protection. Australia's got some really good child protection laws and I think we have cleaned up a lot of that uh, those those places that used to be quite unsafe for children in Australia, but we've still got a long way to go. Um, but yeah, globally, there's over a million children trafficked every single year. That is staggering. When I, I made the comment that the thirteen thousand seemed like a big number, but it is a drop in the bucket compared to a million. Yeah, it is a drop in the bucket. But I think, Brendan, for those thirteen thousand and for their families and, um, you know, for those that surround them, it is incredibly, it it's, means everything to them because yeah. their freedom has relied on it. And, you know, I'm, I'm pumped that this year we've rescued already over 2,000 uh, individuals. Uh, last year we rescued 3,080. So our rescue numbers have been growing by about 35% year on year, which means we are, you know, we're having a, a greater impact. And our vision is to try and rescue 100,000 children by the end of the decade. So, you know, the pressure's on for us to be able to do that, but we are really committed to doing everything we can to try and rescue 100,000 by the end of the decade, and and we're well on our way to doing that. Yeah, great work. And I'll, I'll be interested to hear from you a little bit more about how you go about that, risk. how do you become alerted to issues. But let me wind back that, that a million kids who are subject to this, this abhorrent um, practice Ignorantly, people from a similar social background as, as I am can form the view that this, this sort of abuse happens with one depraved person at the other end of a computer you know, pulling strings or fostering a connection with, with another kid at the other end of that. But a million children sounds like it's an industry. It is an industry. It's actually the fastest growing criminal activity on the face of the planet. Traffic, human trafficking generates over $150 billion US every single year. And the difference between trafficking of children and I guess the arms trade, so you know, guns, bombs, ammunition, and the drug trade is that children can be bought and sold multiple times a day. Yeah, and uh, whereas you sell a bomb, you use the bomb, it's used. You um, you buy drugs, uh, you use drugs, it's used once it's done. Unfortunately for kids, they can be, you know, five, ten, maybe even more times a day being exploited, and that's day in day out. And so it is a very profitable business, I guess, for traffickers around the world. And again, a lot of the a lot of the times, the people trafficking. Uh, people can just be someone that's opportunistically, you know, came across a, a child in a slum community or in an impoverished country and like, well, this is a quick way to, to, you know, make the money. And unfortunately, what we probably see when I travel overseas to some of the countries that we go and work in is that there are a lot of Australians, not on the end of the computer, but in the bars that we go into yeah. that are exploiting children. Yeah. And uh, I'm actually pretty excited that uh, we have been uh, working, and, and I think last week we had an arrest. There's been an arrest of a number of different um, perpetrators in Australia that we will announce officially in, in the coming week uh, that we've been able to work with the Australian Federal Police to en ensure their arrest uh, because we've been able to rescue the girl and we were able to identify these uh, men out of the video footage and, and things that we were able to uh, to capture at the time of her arrest of her um, rescue. How do you go about helping these people? Do you is there whistleblowers? Are there monitoring? Are there informants? How how do you get to know what's going on? Yeah, Brendan, it's it's probably different in every country we're in. In some of our countries, we are going to you know bars. We will go in and pose as customers. We'll go in and pose as you know, I guess a group of guys that just 
are out for a good night and out for a bit of fun and, and you're going in undercover, uh, you're trying to identify who's in this particular establishment and if there are children there that you suspect um, might be underage, we will then, you know, work with police to get them out. Other times we'll have tip-offs. We might have people email us, phone us. We've got, you know, might be community leaders that will give us a tip-off that there's something happening. So, the you know, the method of that is really varied. Um, up in Nepal, we've got a whole heap of female Nepalese border agents that work along the Nepal border. And last year, uh, they interviewed 23,000 people crossing the Nepalese border, and we rescued 920 individuals. And so that was a you know process of, of finding these people that were crossing the border. And the border up in Nepal is a little bit like the border between Queensland and New South Wales at Kula Gutter. And so people are just walking across the border. They don't need a passport. They're not look, you know, having ID checks, and you can just go across. So it's really easy to traffic someone um, across that border. And our border agents were able to stop them, uh, interview them, ring back to the parents, find out where the parent or the guardians or someone at home knows that they're crossing the border. Uh, and because there's a lot of people that are tricked in, into that. And then, you know, once they cross the border, they're lost for the rest of their life, mm. but, uh, most likely. So, the yeah, the way we find them is really varied. Uh, we've also mm. got some really new technology that's helping us on the online sexual exploitation Based where kids are being exploited online, and we've got some real cutting-edge technology now that's enabling us to um, get into some of those dark spots on the dark web um, using artificial intelligence and and other yeah different methods which we won't go into. But um, that's helping us identify Aussies that could be exploiting kids online from the you know from the perceived comfort of their lounge room, and mm. we're really hopeful that some of that technology in the years to come will play a leading role in identifying where Aussies are particularly exploiting kids. Mm. I want to pick up the story of how do we make a difference in this space and what role an independent organisation like yours holds, what role might government hold, what Mm. what role might individual households and, and people hold. But, Paul, you started life as an accountant. You started like, yes. you know, doing audits and ledgers. And how did you find your way to, to this sort of work? What's your story of being called into saving and rescuing these kids? Yeah, I had a you know really unique childhood, I guess, growing up. My grandfather and his brother invented the sugarcane harvester. So I grew up in um, Thunderbird in, um, I guess, central Queensland. Um, and I had a, a family history of my grandfather um, taking the sugarcane harvester around the world in the 1950s, 60s, and I think 70s, um, selling a sugarcane harvester. And so he was, you know, in the, the period of time where air travel was really, um, well, really uncommon, not like today when everyone's used to jumping on a plane, but, you know, in the 1950s and, and 60s, he was in... South America, he was in Africa, he was, you know, across the subcontinent uh, selling sugarcane harvesters. And so I grew up, I guess, in a family where I had a really, um, particularly for a kid growing up in Bundaberg, <laughs> um, a really odd view of the world, I suppose, because it was a really global view of the world. And mm. when I finished year 12, I went as a Rotary Youth Exchange student to Finland uh, for a year. So when I lived up in Scandinavia, um, did year 12 or you know, did their year 12. Uh, up in Finland. I got to travel a fair bit through that year through Europe and into Russia quite a number of times because Finland borders Russia and went in there a few times. And and I came back probably with a sense of calling that, you know, maybe one day I'd be a missionary, but I'd, I'd been able to, you know, I got into uni, I deferred uni for a year and I thought, well, I enjoyed numbers, I enjoyed accounting at, at school, which for some weird reason. And so I went and did my bachelor's um, I was about six months into the degree and went, I need to earn some money as well. And so I ended up getting a job and, and ended up at KPMG, uh, studying my bachelor's while working at KPMG. And, and um, yeah, like it was a phenomenal grounding for my life and, and yeah. something that I have used, uh, you know, on, on, in, well, I use it every day. I use my accounting background and knowledge. It's helped me in business. It's helped me in leadership. It's helped me understand budgeting and it's helped me understand, a, you know, gets a commercial side to any organisation that's got to be profitable or you've got to be breaking even um, to be able to survive. Um, 
And then after a number of years at KPMG, I'd been starting to do mission trips with my church, and um, and I went on a, a missions trip to um, to South Africa, and then from that went on and spent a year in London, working with the Salvation Army, doing youth work and mission work in in the UK, and you know travelled again back to Russia, travelled back to South Africa, um, and really opened my eyes to. I guess that full-time ministry space and and I think I you know I often think about I swap numbers for people because I enjoyed doing numbers but I enjoyed people more and I you know I think I found real purpose and meaning uh, through the international travel and I felt that real real draw to help people in Australia engage with the rest of the world. Mm. It does sound like you had a background that was ideally preparing you for holding a global perspective, but also one that is not just humanitarian. It is informed by something deeper and an understanding that each one of those lives that you were helping make a difference with is is more than just a human. There is something unique and precious about them eternally. How did faith become part of your own experience and, and a driver for you to be led along this line or into this field of of service yeah i think i would still think a lot of it would come back to a real grounding that i particularly got from my grandparents from my grandfather and my grandmother they were um, incredibly faithful and generous people and really believed in uh people you know people being made in the image of god and I think for me, I remember the, the first weekend that I ever went into Russia. Uh, it was while I was an exchange in Finland and we'd gone across to St. Petersburg for the weekend. And I had this sense of calling uh, from God to the world. You know, I'd, I'd, it was interesting. I'd gone through a really difficult period in my faith um, at the end of year 12 with um, probably, you know, what I'd probably talk about some described as some spiritual abuse that happened in the, the church that I was, I was a part of and, and manipulation and, and, and whatnot. And I was fairly disillusioned, disillusioned with religion, mm. but I understood relationship with God. And mm. it was amazing. I went to this uh, church. I grew up in the Salvation Army. And I went to this church in the Salvation Army church in um, Finland. And I still remember this old lady in that church she would have been in her 70s or 80s and or maybe even older i don't know didn't speak any english and you know i didn't i mean over my 12 months in Finland, i gradually learned to speak finnish but i got to that church going i'm probably not going to go to church this year because i was um really hurt from what had happened to me in in year 12 and i walked into this church and this old lady every week would just come up grab me, look me in the eye, give me this massive big bear hug. And she was a frail old little lady. <laughs> but And she would mumble words at me, which I had no idea what she was saying to me because, you know, early on in the piece, I didn't speak the language. And, and she just loved on me. Like, yeah. Man. And I think that year in Finland was a real pivotal time for me of understanding the difference between religion and relationship with Jesus. Amen. And it restored... Um, restored hope in me, I think, of of um, who God was and then allowed God to just speak to me about who I was. And so, you know, going to, to Russia, I mean, initially I felt, oh, maybe I was being called to be a missionary to Russia. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I think that then, you know, came back home and, and as I went through my early 20s and whatnot, just started engaging in mission, mission activities and, you know, then went to Africa. Uh, initially just on holidays and just fell in love with Africa. And I got to Africa and went, I I have always felt at home when I've been to Africa. And I think I've been on the African continent 25, 26 times now. And <laughs> and I have this experience every single time I land. So the plan, the plan will come into land and I'm just like, I'll come back home again. Wow. And, um, and so there's been a real deep sense of calling Um from me, you know, to the poor, and, and maybe that's because I grew up in the Salvation Army and that great focus on, you know, serving suffering humanity. Um, but a real desire to yeah, do whatever I can do with, you know, to enable people in poverty to find a, a better life. Yeah, that's amazing. And what a great story. 
and how like God to take you to the other side of the world to show you that, you know, there's there's more to it than you might have known in Vandenberg or wherever home was at the time. Uh, again, sending that notion of that he is he is the God over the entire creation. Mm. Great story, yeah, Paul. Really. Wonderful. Um, which leads us to a little family other questions I wanted to to um, explore with you. The the idea of a global experience of or a global conception of the world, which God graciously allowed you to develop in your formative years. And understanding, as you've just explained, that you could find him even in Finland and beyond language, that there was an experience of his reality that was uh, accessible. And now your work, which is looking at the fact that the problem you're addressing is a global problem. There is a universal plague of trafficking and particularly trafficking of children am i right in describing it that way is there universal elements of the human condition that that your work is addressing oh 100 yeah trafficking happens in every single culture language nation around the world so why why is that? Is it, I mean, it would be easy to write some of these things off to say it's it's cultural or it's ideological or it's political or it's economic, but you're suggesting there's something more fundamental. You know, it's often talked about the three great um, vices of the world. I guess is you know uh, power, uh, sex, and money, mm. and I think you find all three of those in trafficking. Uh, you know, people exerting control and force over another individual using that individual to gain personal financial benefit from it Mm. and sex and so Mm. i think um it is horrendous what the extent of this you know we often think about william wilberforce who we thought ended the slave trade um, hundreds of years ago and yet here we are in you know the modern age in the you know to 2023 and you've got kids all over the world individuals all over over the world being exploited for for gain and some form of power Mm. and and i think that comes to a broken humanity that we have Mm. humanity that uh not everybody believes in the best of each other not everybody believes that uh other people need a hand up people Mm like to tread on other people people like to take advantage of other people and and i think that's where it really all stems from so as a christian as somebody that carries that insight into the the fundamental sinfulness of human nature universally and yet needing to needing to do things very practically you need you need to rescue these kids from a particular context or a particular circumstance where do you find the balance between the notion of of a, a spiritual uh, a salvation story and a, a freedom story, a, a practical release from the circumstances? I guess what I'm saying is you you go in and you see these kids in in practical need. They're being practically abused or manipulated or taken advantage of, and the pressing imperative is change those circumstances. But you know that that is symptomatic of a bigger problem, and I guess I'm asking you: How do you? How do you? Does one inform the other? Does one override the other? Mm. How do you reconcile your call to your call as a Christian to redeem the world and your your the need to get that kid out of that brothel? Yeah, well, I think you know one of the, I guess one of the world views I probably grew up with growing up in the Salvation Army is William Booth's idea and notion of soup, soap and salvation Mm. that uh, unless you meet people's physical needs, um, then they're not able to have their spiritual needs met. If if someone is trapped in slavery, uh, they cannot live their life in in all its fullness unless Mm. they're relieved of that situation. And so... I think there is a real human element to 
what we do of trying to get people to a place where they can be safe, where they can be secure, where their basic human needs are being met. Because if, you know, the average life expectancy of someone that is trafficked is about seven years. And, uh, you know, the, often you'll find when, a, when someone has been sold uh, into slavery, whether it be labour trafficking or sex trafficking or other forms of, you know, debt bondage or whatnot, the trafficker will often try and really break the human spirit. And that takes about six months on average that you'd find that uh, it'll take until someone's really given up their own hope. And some of that will depend on what worldview they've come from. Someone that's come from, you know, I guess a, a Hindu background might believe in reincarnation and might believe that in this life, this is their, this is their reincarnated life uh, this time around. And so they deserve what they've got. And it's interesting. I've, I've, you know, a heap of the women that I've seen and met and talked with, particularly through the subcontinent, and that come from that Hindu background, they're like, this is my lot in life, but I don't want this for my kids. I'm, my hope and my prayer for my kids are is that they don't have to go through what I go through. And so there's a worldview for them that is really going, well, you've done something bad in your your former life, so this is your lot, lot, your lot this time, and hopefully in your next life you'll come back to something else now. You know, I think as a Christian, I, I believe differently to that. I don't, you know, I believe that God creates us in his image and that uh, we're all created with immense worth and value and potential. And, you know, I think when I go into some of those dark places on the, you know, around the world, uh, you know that everybody deserves a second chance. You know that everybody deserves another opportunity at life. And, and my heart breaks at the the depravity of man and, and women, so not, you know, but the depravity of the human soul um, that would exploit people and abuse people, but then to see the resilience and hope mm. in people, the way that someone that has been redeemed is able to rise above the situation that they've been in is incredibly inspiring. Mm. And, uh, Brennan, it's amazing to see when God puts back someone's life and, you know, whether they become a Christian or not, whether they stay a Hindu or a Muslim or whatever they might be. Um, but the way that uh, I believe God is able to put someone's life back together mm. and build hope in them because somebody else was able to stand alongside them and go, we believe in you mm. and we see hope in you and we see value in you and you deserve freedom and you deserve your basic human rights and, mm. and are prepared to go and get that. It's incredibly inspiring to see that mm. play out. So there, there's the other side of the story, right? Because you, my question was a little esoteric and philosophical about how what's motivating your workers or your organisation, the, the grand notion of of redemption and and um, the the symbolic notion of addressing mm. the wrongs of the world versus the individual experience. But you, you're really saying it the other side of the coin as well. You've changed the circumstances for the the person who is set free, but you've given them much more than just a change circumstance. You've given them identity and dignity and yeah. hope for a future. Yeah, Brendan, look, every single person on the face of the planet deserves that. Mm. It is a human right. It's a human right for everybody to have freedom, for everyone to have identity, for everyone to, to be able to control their own choices, their own agency, I guess. Um, and... Uh, you know, where there is brokenness, there is also redemption. Yeah. You know, where there is sin, there's also forgiveness of sin. Um, where there is exploitation, there is freedom on the other side of that door. And, um, you know, we do live in an incredibly broken world. I feel like our world is becoming more and more broken. It's, you know, we live in a society that's all about, it is all about the individual in so many ways, but it's a, it's a bad individual game. You know, it's about well, what's in it for me. And, and you know, our kids are taught that. Well, what's in it mm. for you? You only do it if there's something in it for you. No, well, what if, there's, what if it's about what's in it for you is the fact that you actually get to be a huge blessing to somebody else. You get to mm. actually add value to somebody else's world. You know, I think a lot of our mental health challenges would go away if people change their perspective mm. that it's not just about you, but it's about how do you serve somebody else. And, mm. And, you know, if we had a world that was more cohesive and together mm. and supportive and loving and caring, like a lot of those basic things that Jesus talked about, you know, when he walked uh, the earth and that's written about in, in the Bible, those basic tenets of human behaviour that 
I think we're created for, our world would, would be an incredibly different place than what it is at the moment. Yeah, I, I want to come back to that notion of of how how does the work you are doing what what implications does it have for people like me and and our view of ourselves and of the world? But if you bear with me, the notion you used the reference about agency that you were restoring agency for the people who are rescued. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether you could share some reflections about the view that. I don't know how prevalent this is you, but I'm I'm sure that there must be a condescending uh, position that those who are removed from the work you were doing, as by, by some measure of comfort, will will say that it's the result of choices. People have made choices and ended up in these desperate situations. They could have done something different. They didn't have to be in that space and. You understand what I'm saying? That there is yeah. not like yeah. they get what they deserve almost, but almost that they get what they that they could have done something different. How, how realistic is that view compared to the circumstances that you you face? I think, um, Brennan, I'd answer the, the question, I guess, in this way. I had no control whatsoever that I was born in Australia, in Bundaberg, to a you know, relatively on global standards, wealthy family, Mm. and that I wasn't born a poor kid in Africa or, you know, Nepal or Thailand. Um, None of us, none of us at all have any control or say over where we are born. And, and, And so what I find about poverty, poverty is generally a lack of opportunity um, and in a, in a country like Australia, we have opportunity in the bucket loads. Mm. We all get to go to school. Uh, but if you're a kid that's grown up in a slum community around the world in, in a developing nation, you've potentially never gone to school. So you've never had an opportunity. Mm. And so when people say, well, it was the parents that went and sold the kid and it was a parent's fault, I'm like, well, is it really choice when you are desperate to eat today and you need to put food on the table and the only way you can find income to be able to buy a meal for your family is to go and sleep with someone. I met a girl in Zimbabwe this year that uh, was a child-headed household. Her parents had died of HIV and AIDS. Um, She was trying to bring up her younger sister and for 25 cents, Every day she was going to sleep with a man so that she could put food on the table for her and her sister so they could go to school. Now, she didn't do that because she wanted to do it. She didn't do it because she couldn't, you know, couldn't work out. She had nothing better to do. She did that because she was a 14-year-old girl trying to bring up a younger sister and she had no other opportunity. Mm. And... That is genuinely the situation you find kids mm. in. Mm. Um, it's not for choice. It's not because they're lazy. It's not because it's just because they've had a lack of opportunity. Mm. You know, potential is everywhere, mm. but opportunity is not. Mm. And if you're unlucky enough to be born in an impoverished country where you don't have clean drinking water, there's malaria. There's lack of food, lack of jobs, lots of exploitation. What you know, you don't get to go to school. In some of those countries, if you're unlucky enough to be born a girl, you're disadvantaged because you don't have the educational rights. If you're not the firstborn, you don't have the the privileges. Sometimes because the the privileges might be given to one child in the family, and you just happen to be the one that wasn't the firstborn, and you weren't male, or or you know whatever it yeah. might be, and that's the reality for a lot of kids around the world. And so they end up in the situation that they're in just because they were unlucky enough to be born in that country. But for me, I was lucky enough to be born in Oz. Yeah, you know, it doesn't get much luckier than than yeah. being an Aussie citizen. Amen. I, I said earlier, I want to come back and ask you what are the implications of that reality for people in Australia like myself, but. Before I put that question to you, and this is an unfair question to put, Paul, so I understand hmm. um, it's, it's bigger than, than we can properly deal with. But 
but at yeah. a personal level, as a Christian, committed to a, a, the outworking of grace from a loving God, what struggles or what answers have you found for yourself in saying, I, I see the randomness of your birth, the circumstances mm. that you have no control over, and some born to opportunity and some born to desperate poverty and uh, abuse. How do you reconcile that with a loving creator? Look, I think we are in a fallen world. We are in a world where sin exists. And I don't believe our world is like a loving creator designed the world to be. It's why he sent, why he sent his son to atone for the world. Amen. And that, you know, I think one of the incredible privileges that we have as Christians is to be the hands and feet of Jesus. To yes. be bringers of good news. Now, bringers mm. of good news for me isn't just about I've got to go and you know, um, uh, you know, speak with words mm. um, what someone needs to believe. But I, mm. but you know, Jesus went and met the poor. Jesus went and sat with the prostitutes mm. and and said, "Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more." Like he went and healed those that were sick and mm. gave us an incredible example of what the church is meant to be. And, you know, I look around the world today, Brendan, and I see that our inst- most of our Western institutions that are helping people, so schools, um, hospitals, uh, medicine, um, all come out of Christian heritage, comes out mm. of people using the intellect that God's given them, using the skills that, that God's maybe placed in their hands and then using that for the betterment of humanity yeah. to try and make a difference. And I look at how the church does that around the world. I look at, at the rates of poverty, extreme poverty around the world have massively dropped over the last 50 years or so. And uh, and a lot of that is actually driven out of a, a Christian worldview, a Christian belief in um, the sanctity of life, and mm. in uh, the, you know, that, that sense that people are, are made in the image of God. Um, and then I think, you know, I see my personal responsibility is, well, what do I do with what I've been given for those that I can assist? Am mm. I called to help, help the whole world? No, I'm not. I don't think mm. any of us are. Mm. And, um, but I can help those that I come in contact with. And mm. we often talk about, you know, I guess at Destiny Rescue, we use the starfish analogy in many ways where, you know, people, you know, a lot of your listeners might have heard it, but, you know, someone's walking on the beach one day and there's a whole heap of starfish up on the sand. They've been washed up onto the sand and, and this guy starts walking along and he throws the starfish in and throws another one in and throws another one back in the water and someone goes, why are you doing that? There's so many starfish on the beach. You're, you're not making a difference for them all. And he's like, well, it does for this one and it does for this one yeah. and it does for this one. Yeah. And I think that's what God calls us all to play our part. I think, you know, the body of Christ is a rich tapestry of people right across the world in some of the most inspiring places on the face of the planet. And um, we all get to, to make our world a better place. And, and I yeah. think by and large we are getting to see that our world is, you know, as, as difficult as it is in a lot of places with the rise of social media and technology and everything like that, at the same time there's an incredible rise of, of even people that have been at the bottom of society so people in impoverished nations are coming to countries like australia now yeah. and bringing the gospel in in the sense of jesus love and his hope and healing and and bringing restoration and a message of hope to people um you know there's this reverse trend of, of missionary service now where i re, you know i was at all Hassan, young leaders gathering back in 2016 i think it was and you know, I met some of the most incredible people from the Middle East and and from North Africa and um, Asia who were out being missionaries in Western society, trying yeah. to bring the gospel Amazing. into our cultures and society, and and really bringing hope, really trying to remind people that actually there is a God that loves you and cares for you and and has a plan for your life and has um, real potential for you to achieve all that you could achieve. Beautiful. So I, hope, I don't know. I hope that answered the question. It does. It does. It, it made me think. Actually, we. Um, I had a conversation with Dr. Chris Watkin in a previous episode of, of this podcast. He's written a book recently, Biblical Critical Theory. 
And one of the points he makes, which I think is echoing exactly the, the point you're making, is that the doctrine of sin is actually good news, that it is heralding the fact that the brokenness we see around us is not God's plan. Yeah. The, the inherent knowledge that we all carry that things should be better mm. is right. And it's it's the echo of that good creator that set things in order that we've lost is reverberating is mm. us saying, yes, that is unjust. Yes, that is unfair. Yes, that is not right. And we're called to do something about it, uh, which yeah. I think is fantastic. Yeah. Paul, as we, as we come to the end of, of our chat, I've been wanting to get to the implications of the the world that you are making a difference in that not many of us are able to be engaged in directly as as your workers, the implications for us. I, I, I wonder there that you've, you've spoken a little earlier about, you know, what's expected of us, people who have been born with opportunity of, mm. of our Australian society, of our education, probably for many of our listeners, even the, the chance to have responded to the gospel ourselves mm. and to know the goodness of God in our lives. What might you encourage folk from that part of the world to consider as, as their response to the work you're doing? I think every single one of us, regardless, uh, you know, every single person in Australia has opportunity to make a difference in someone else's life. And that could be, you know, as simple as caring for your next-door neighbour who's going through a, a, you know, horrible week, might be going through a, a family situation, a health challenge, whatever it might be. I think every single one of us are called to do something for other people. Mm. You know, the research and statistics show that people that live their lives for other people, not just for themselves, mm. actually have better mental health, have better quality of life, have, have better health. Um, and I think um, I would invite your listeners to lean into that challenge to be supporting others that that would be written in scriptures that you know that sense of doing the right thing for your other you know brothers and sisters around the world for humankind for, for other people around the world mm. help where you can help under you know discover what your passion and calling is discover why you have uniquely been placed on the face of this planet and then go and live your life out trying to find out how you can make that happen mm. uh you know, one of the things I love about what I get to do at Destiny Rescue is we get to invite a whole heap of uh, everyday, uh, ordinary yet incredible and extraordinary Australians to help change the lives of children around the world. Mm. And they just get to do that by being door openers. Mm. They get to do that by going and you know, earning an income and, and you know getting their salary and then coming and going, well, you know what? I can't save all these kids, but I can save some. And... You know, it was interesting the other week, uh, had a um, whole group of friends from our church went and watched the movie Sound of Freedom, which tells the story of a child uh, that had been rescued uh, in South America who had been trafficked. And and at the end of it, uh, one of the ladies in our church was talking to me. She was like, you know, Paul, she goes, I've got, I haven't got $30,000 to give to help rescue kids and all that sort of stuff. I don't feel like I can do anything. And, and I said to her, yeah, but you know what? You could do $30 a week, you could, or $30 a month, or, or whatever it might be that you can do, and you can actually be part of enabling other people to have those opportunities mm. so that kids that got rescued in that movie can do the same thing. And I think that for all of us, if every single person in Australia and around the world that had means and capacity did something, mm. doesn't, you know, again, I think in, in the scriptures of the woman with the, 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 the coin, the, the, mm. the lady with the might, that went and gave her really small amount. And yet Jesus held her up as an example mm. for others to see that it wasn't about the amount, but it was about the heart went, that mm. went before it. And as you see people going, you know what, I can't do much, but I can do something, you suddenly mm. get to see people find meaning in their life. Mm. You, you start to, you know, people start to get to discover that, wow, I've actually made a difference in that person's life and that person's life and that person's life. And that, for me, is about the gospel being shared, I think. That's about people going someone stood beside me in the darkest days mm. in the most challenging situation when i lost a parent when i lost a child when 
when something went incredibly wrong in my life, I had someone stand alongside of me. And I think that's redemption. That mm. is where you get to see the gospel worked out. And, you know, I'd encourage your listeners to be part of that, be part yeah. of the solution. Because yeah. we can all stand there and go, oh, wow, the problem's way too big, a million kids, man, what's the point? Well, if it was your kid, yeah, what would you want Destiny Rescue to do? Yeah, If your kid was taken, do you want us to go, oh, too hard, there are too many other kids taken yeah. today? Or do you, do you want us to, all right, we're going to do whatever we can and we're going to get us whatever support we can get because there are parents all around the world that are going, will someone help me find my kid? Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Paul, last question before I give you a final opportunity to plug Destiny Rescue and how any people might get involved or offer financial support. Doing what you do and and knowing that you you and your team are making such a difference, such a positive impact against things that are so horrific. Mm. How do you find your your own how do you balance your own sense of neediness before God, your own sense of of accountability and the need for grace? How, how do you not fall into I, I'm so thankful that I'm not like like that and be justified by your good works, your good attitude, your relatively good life. Where's grace in your experience? Brendan, I see grace everywhere I go. I see redemption everywhere I go. Um, I actually pray for the pedophiles and the traffickers and the pimps that get arrested that maybe, one, that, you know, they get locked up and they get taken off the street so that they can't harm other people. But my hope and prayer would be that they would find redemption, mm. that they would find that their sinfulness and brokenness is restored and that they could find uh, healing and um, salvation, I guess, in mm. you know whatever, uh, because I don't believe God turns his back on any of us. Mm. Um, but I think in the sort of work I do years and years and years ago, in the early stages of my ministry life, I guess, I realised that you know, I was giving it everything and mm. then I gave it everything plus some more. <laughs> mm. And I realised that I need balance in my life and I need to have perspective on what God's called me to do mm. and what my particular role is mm. uh, on in, in this lifetime. And I think that was really helpful for me, realising that, you know, I, I don't have to be part of every single issue. I don't, you know, I'm not necessarily called even to... Um, try and rescue kids from every single country or area around the world. But I can do what's in my hands and in my control what to do. And I often come back to, I was Moses and his staff, and God said, you know, Moses like, well, who am I? I I can't do anything about leading your people. And God said, well, what's in your hand? He's like, my staff's in your hand. And God's like, well, use that. Mm. Use that to lead your people. And I think I've developed over the years a real healthy worldview of what's in my hand mm. and what can I give and what can I do, and I just get about doing that. Mm. Um, you know, I've probably made conscious decisions sometimes to go, I love the issue that somebody else is about, but it's not my issue. And, and you know, some of your listeners would go, oh, human trafficking, yeah, that's not my issue. But there'll be other listeners that go, human trafficking, mm. man, I actually feel a sense of calling. Mm. I could actually mm. do something about this. And, mm. and we need people that, um, are committed to dealing with the lack of education of kids in poverty around the world. Um, we need people to deal with, you know, getting kids, uh, people clean drinking water, making mm. sure that there's great mental health support. So, you know, every single one of us has a role to play somewhere in our society to bring good news. Uh, for me, it's knowing that my sense of calling is to do that in this kind mm. of environment and. You know, and who knows, maybe in time to come, it's a, it's a different sense of calling. God might change that calling uh, over my life at, at some point in the future or, or it might broaden that out to do something else. But I think there's that real sense of knowing your identity, knowing what you've been called to do. And if you're not sure what it is, well, what I'd say is go and try something and start mm. to see, oh, actually, you know, th- th- don't be paralysed, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Don't get paralysed by the fact that I don't know what to do so I don't do anything. But just go and do something. Yeah. And then you might find that by doing something, you get to understand that God's actually called you to really do you know, something in a particular area. That is so good. Very good advice. And, and Paul, I can understand, I can hear in your story, the difference you're making is because of the difference that has been made in your heart. 
hundred percent. You're not earning your relationship with Jesus. What you're doing is flowing from that relationship with Jesus. Mm. And that's a precious thing. Uh, We will be praying that God continues to equip you and and empower you to lead this incredibly important work. Just as we sign off, if people did feel that they wanted to get involved, particularly with supporting Mm. Destiny Rescue, what might they do? How, How might they go about that? Yeah, but and people can go to our website, destinyrescue.org, and we would love to invite them to sign up to become a rescue partner. Our rescue partners are just those people that go, you know what, every month I'm going to support the work of Destiny Rescue. You can choose the amount. Uh, on average, it costs $1,800 to rescue a child, but we have got this whole huge army of rescue partners spread across the country who are just committed to ensuring that rescue can remain relentless every single Mm. day of the year. Mm. We rescue on average 16 kids every day at the moment or 16 individuals every day at the moment. And uh, we need more people in our rescue partner army because the more people we have in that, the more kids we could rescue. We could literally double the number of our our rescues overnight if we had the funding to do it. And uh, I was talking to a country manager in the Philippines only a week or two ago and he's like we have got so many raids ready to happen we're just waiting for funding to come through and uh, so look I invite you people head to destinyrescue.org have a look at the links on the website uh, to become a rescue partner and we are absolutely committed to keeping you informed Mm. to stewarding your money really well and to making sure as much money as we can send to rescue goes towards rescue so we can get as many kids out as possible. That is fantastic. Paul, I, I want to thank you for being courageous enough to do the work you're doing and, and leading that team. Do know that the broader church is praying for you and supporting you, and I really hope that you, you see a little spike in some of the support that might come as people listen to your story and, and the passion that you bring to it. God bless you, and thank you for your story. Thank you so much, Brendan. really appreciate the opportunity to share with all your listeners today.